and join me in prayer. Lord, Father, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for your love and goodness. Lord, our prayer tonight is that you'd be here with us, that you'd speak to us through your word, that it would be applicable to our lives. Lord, that you'd uh, change us as, Lord, I know you're so desirous to do. We love you, Lord. We thank you for the fellowship we have here in Christ, in Jesus' name. Amen. So tonight we're going to be in John chapter 16, verses 16 through 33. And uh, our topic is going to be what we have in Jesus. You know, one of the things that I tend to forget as I'm reading through the Gospels is that the disciples didn't follow religion. They weren't Christians. They didn't have a formal church. Um, They didn't have a pastor per se. But instead, they followed the person of Jesus Christ. And, you know, sometimes we forget that in our own lives as well. We forget that in our own daily practice as believers, in our desire to be obedient to him. We also forget it in so much as when we read, we're so quick to judge the disciples for what they're feeling or what they do. Because we forget, well, you know, they're learning for the first time. They're following a man who they're convinced is the Messiah, and they don't quite know it all yet, but they're learning as they go. And such is the case here in John chapter 16. In this last part of the chapter, it's the really the end of Jesus' teaching disciples here at the Last Supper. And after this, in chapter 17, he's going to pray, and he's going to pray out loud. He's going to pray for himself. He's going to pray for the disciples that are there. He's he's even going to pray for us, the believers that are going to come after him. Um, And all of this before he's betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane and then taken captive and and executed the following day. And so in this last little bit of teaching, Jesus here is seeking to comfort the disciples regarding his very close departure. And he wants to point them to the power and the hope of his resurrection. And that's where they needed to be looking. And they needed to not be distracted and, you know, caused to, to lose hope because it seems that he's done for. And so he does this in three different ways in the passage. First, he reminds them that there is joy in him. There's joy in Jesus. Secondly, that they will have access in him, access to the Father. And thirdly, that they're going to have peace through the victory that exists in Jesus Let's go ahead and read verse 16. It says, A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me, because I go to the Father. Then some of his disciples said among themselves, What is this that he says to us, A little while, and you will not see me? And again, a little while, and you will see me, and because I go to the Father. They said, Therefore, what is this that he says a little while? We do not know what he is saying. Now, Jesus knew that they desired to ask him, And he said to them, are you inquiring among yourselves about what I said a little while and you will not see me? And again, a little while and you will see me. Most assuredly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice and you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. See, a woman, when she's in labor, has sorrow because her hours come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Therefore, you now have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, 
and your joy no one will take from you. And in that day you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. Until now you've asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language, but the time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. See, in that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say that I shall pray the Father for you, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I come forth from God. So I come forth from the Father, and I have come into the world. Again, I leave the world and go to the Father. So his disciples said to him, seeing you now, you are speaking plainly and using no figure of speech. Now we are sure that you know all things and have no need that anyone should question you. By this, we believe that you've come forth from God. So Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Indeed, the hour is coming, yes, has now come, that you will be scattered each to his own and will leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So first in verses 16 through 22, we're going to look at the joy that we have in Jesus and the joy that they had in Jesus. So first in verse 16, Jesus tells them as clearly as he could for now that he was no longer going to be with him. Notice he's saying that in, in a little bit, He'd be gone. They wouldn't see him anymore. That, that phrase, a little while in the Greek, is just used to emphasize the shortness of any time interval. So, so how little a time to this, that, and the other thing. Okay? In specifically, New Testament is usually used with regard to the return of Christ. Okay? So in the imminent nature of that. And so he says, in a little while you will not see me. And he means to say you will not, not just see me with your eyes, but... You will not be in my presence. You won't be able to enjoy that fellowship that we have face to face. Okay, So in just a little bit, you're, we're not going to be around each other, guys. I want to be separate from you. It's not a very encouraging way to start, by the way. You know, you hear that, you're like, whoa, what, what, what do you mean? Okay, And he gives them the reason why this is going to happen. He says, because he goes to the Father. And he says, and then you'll be able to see me again. Okay, Because I'm going to go to the Father. And here when he says you're going to see me again, he's talking about how you are going to behold me again. You're going to see me face to face because I needed to leave. And that word go means to depart from any place. And here departing from earth to the Father in heaven is what he's talking about. And speak, Jesus is speaking here about his coming death and then his resurrection three days later. So he's giving them both things here as he's talking to them. In a little while, I will go from you. You will not see me anymore. We won't be able to be together. But then in a little while, you're going to see me again because I go to the Father. Okay? And of course, we know, as we read through the gospel, Jesus has told them this before, numerous times. Okay? I've never gone through and done a tally myself, but it's something I've got to take some time to do one day as I'm reading through the gospels. How many times he makes reference to the fact that I'm, di- I'm going to die, but I'm going to ra- rise again on the third day. And then you're going to see me alive. Okay? And I'm not going to be dead anymore. And this is really what he's talking about. And the reason he's telling us this, this before is so that they would be able to have hope when it seemed like they should have no hope. He says, I want you guys to remember this. I want you guys to know what I'm going to do and how it's going to happen. Okay? And, and hopefully 
That's the way it works in our own lives. That we remember the things that the Lord says and that those are the things that we hold on to. Those are the things that he reminds us of and says, you remember that? And we're like, oh yeah, I remember that. But, and you see, the good thing about the way the Lord deals with us is he prepares us for the things that come in life just as he's preparing them. He, he looks after them and he tells them the end from the beginning just like he does to us and says, you guys know how that ends. You guys know that we win. We should look to that. Why do we fret? Why do we, why do we get distracted? Sometimes it happens because, well, we haven't been in the Word enough. Sometimes it happens because we're young in Christ, we're immature, still growing, whatever it is. For them, they, they don't have the understanding yet. They don't have the gift of the Holy, the Holy Spirit living in them yet, which they're going to have shortly thereafter. And this is what he talks about in the first part of chapter 16. Where he talks about it's necessary that he should go so that the Helper will be able to come to them. Now, the result of this is that these guys are utterly confused. They start asking each other. They look to each other for clarification. Hey, do you know what he means? Right? What does he mean when he says a little while this and then a little while that and then we'll see him and not see him and going to the Father? They didn't understand the verbiage. They didn't understand what it all meant. They were confusing things. When you look at it in the Greek, they're using the same word each time for the see, not understand that Jesus is kind of parsing the two and telling them very specifically how it's going to be different after from before how he is not going to stay with them physically after, but he's going to ascend to the Father. And that's why he says you're going to see me physically and not you're going to be there in my presence. You know, you know they didn't want Jesus to go anywhere. They're like, you, you stay here. You, know? you, you don't have to go. They, they were frightened by this idea. You know, in the same way that a kid is frightened to leave their parents' side, Right? Is the exact same thing that I imagine they were feeling. They were nervous. You know, my son, how old is he now? He's nine. He's nine years old. And like most boys, you know, he talks a big game, right? Boys are all, all about that. Like, yeah, I'm that and that and the other thing and this thing. He loves saying stuff. But then it was time to go to the kids' retreat. He's like, yeah, I don't want to go. So why not? Don't you have fun? He's like, yeah, I have fun. Yeah, I don't want to. You want to stay at home. Not because he doesn't have fun he was scared to sleep in somewhere else. He's like, I don't know. He's like, Daryl Ditterbrand hurts me sometimes. <laughs> and uh, I said, well, Ben, that's just the way it is. You got to take your lumps. <laughs> See, he was nervous. He didn't want to be gone from home for that long. He's like, I'll spend nights somewhere. You know, the cousins are different, but that's a whole nother thing. I don't know those people. You know, I just see them once a week or, you know, the people at the camp. Who are they? They're making our food. I think this is where the apostles were at. They, they didn't want this at all. And so they hear it and they're just like, what, what, what do we do? See, and the only thing they could do is they could hope with, with one another. In verse 18, it says they turn to each other and they're asking, you know, well, do you know? And it says that they didn't know. We do not know what he's saying. They admitted to each other. We, we don't understand this. It doesn't make sense to us mentally, you know. They couldn't give each other any kind of an answer. And that's the worst. You know, when you go to somebody, you think they must know. And then you ask them, like, I don't know. Like, Whoa. <laughs> like, you know, when so many people walk up to the pastor, one of the pastors and say, you know, I got this question, blah, 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 blah. And they go, I don't know. The look on people's face is priceless. You know, they're just like, what? Like, yeah, I don't know. Sorry. <laughs> you know, it's not clear. People freak out. Like, oh, God, you know, what's happening? But they didn't know. And so they go to each other. And the problem really is that they didn't go to the Lord, you know. 
They're going to, to their, their buddies and say, do you know, I don't know. You know, it reminds me of when, when I'm in class and when kids don't get something, they don't want to ask stuff. You know, there could be 25 of them and 21 of them don't know and they all just look at each other. You know, you? I don't know. And none of them wants to ask. So that's when you got to put one on the spot. You! What's your question? Uh, you know, then they say it. And the other ones, other ones are like, yeah, yeah, that's, what we're, that's our question. You know? This is exactly where the disciples were at, where they didn't want to say anything. None of them knew. And of course, they're infamous for doing things like this. They go to each other for this. Do you get this? I don't get it. I don't get it either. You know? All right, let's keep going. It's amazing that despite all of the confusion that they dealt with and the things that they didn't understand, they continued to be faithful to God during all this. It's pretty, it's pretty impressive when you think about it. You've got to believe that they, they were convinced. They believed. Jesus would say crazy things and other people would take off and they'd stick around. Jesus, of course, knew this, it says. It tells us here that he knew that, that they wanted to ask him this. That word know here is the word gnosko in Greek, which means to understand something. And it's something that's grounded in personal experience. You know, it's not the first time. They've done this in the past. He knows what they do. He knows their hearts. He knows their wishes. He understands their question. And he didn't need them to tell him. He saw it written all over their faces. He saw it in their discussions. And it's important to understand the point of order here that as they have dinner, then Jesus is teaching them these things. It's not like it is in Scripture where it looks like one continuous kind of sermon. He speaks, and then there's space between. It's like any kind of a conversation. Jesus talks, and of course, for them to ask each other questions, there had to be a gap. Like, he said this, and they're like, oh, what is this? I don't know. And then, you know, they're eating whatever with their, with their flat bread and having their Passover meal. Remember, they, they disputed among themselves about who would be the greatest in Mark nine thirty three, And then Jesus calls them out. He says, you guys are, are you guys arguing about this? And they're like, oh, or you know about that? You know? You know, the Father and Jesus, for that matter, they know our needs. They know what you need before you even ask. And like it says in Matthew 6, 8, for the Father knows the things you have need of before you ever ask him. You know, how often do we abstain from asking the Lord for what we need? For whatever reason, whether it's stubbornness or pride or foolishness, whatever it is, that we have to just go to him. I just ask him, Lord, so, so what about this? What about that? Why do we not trust him more often? And it's our flesh, right? It's our flesh, and we have to yield to him. We have to take our concerns to him because he delights to take care of the things in our life. You know, he wants to be able to do the things, but he's never going to force himself on us. He's never going to say, no, 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 let me do this. And he doesn't do that. He lets us try it. He, let, he lets us figure it out a little bit, and all while teaching us. So then Jesus asks them, knowing what's going on here, and says, so are you guys asking this? Are you guys inquiring about this thing? It's always interesting. Whenever Jesus asks people questions, he knows the answer. He, he's pointing something out to them normally. Do you really think so? It's like there's this wonderful line in To Kill a Mockingbird where Scout's talking. It's, it's, a, it's a novel, those of you guys. I'm an English teacher, so. Um, it's also a movie for those of you guys that watch movies. Um, there's this great line in, in the book where the narrator Scout's talking about her father, and she says, you know, he asked him, do you really think so? He says, that was an infamous question. Whenever he asked that, then this would happen. Whenever he asked that, this would happen. Whenever he asked that, this would happen. There was an expectation that something would happen afterwards where there would be something revelatory or something astounding. When Jesus asked the question, do, 
do you really think so, right? Are you really asking this question? His expectation is going to answer it. And he let them know that he knew they were looking for answers even among themselves in the wrong places. And then he gives it to them without them having to utter a word. He says, this is what I mean. And, you know, the Lord is faithful and that he meets us where we're at. And all of our deficiencies and all of our shortcomings, the Lord's like, okay, I, I could work with that. And it's just coming to him is what he's looking for, yeah. As we just take those little baby steps to him, he's like, okay, let, that's good. Let's do this now. Let's do that. You know, Jesus then starts to explain to him exactly what the situation is that they're walking into. He tells him it's going to be difficult in verse 20. He says, most assuredly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. And you'll be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. Most assuredly, the verily, verily, like it says in the King James Version. It says, you can count on this, that you're going to be weeping from pain and grief, and you're going to be mourning. It's the word lament used for the people that would, sing, that would wail at, at, these, uh, at, at these dirges, these funerals. So they'd be, they'd be thrown into the state of bitter weeping and lamentation because he is going to die. They'd be absolutely despondent. He says, that's what's coming. You guys are going to be in a really bad spot. You guys are going to be broken. Not necessarily encouraging at that point to them. I'm sure it sounded like the furthest thing from what they wanted to hear. You know, it reminds you of like when Paul asks the Lord, you know, hey, take this thorn away, take this thorn. He's like, nope, sorry, my strength is made perfect in weakness. He's like, okay, all right, Lord, you know, you know. He says, not only are you guys going to be in a bad spot. And you guys are going to be mourning, but everyone else is going to love it. He says they're going to be rejoicing because he dies. They're not going to have compassion on you. They're going to revel because the Son of Man is, has been put to death. You know, they're going to be utterly, utterly alone at this point. It's just going to be them, and they're going to feel like they're out on an island. And you see, this is exactly how, how many of us sometimes feel as believers in this world. We're just kind of stuck. We're, you're out there. There you go. You know, you're a believer. Everyone else is doing this. Yeah, I know. And, and that's where the Lord's put us. You got to imagine what kind of trust the Lord puts in vessels like us that he puts, allows us to be in that spot. You know, he says, here you go. He says, I'm putting you here on purpose. And I'm going to give you what you need to be able to get through this. Because the world, the world doesn't like you. The world's your enemy. And he's letting them know this loud and clear. They hate you because you believe in me. Because you want to share the gospel. And it hasn't changed from then to now. You know, and you've got to realize when Jesus is telling them this, Jesus is not telling them this so that they'd be moved to anger or sorrow or hatred of those people. It's none of that at all. But he tells them this to let them know what it costs to walk in him. That the Christian life is a lonely life when it's walked for Christ. And that happens oftentimes. But then there's fellowship in him. There's fellowship with him. There's fellowship with each other. There's encouragement. There's all those things that come because we're all connected to him. And that's a difficult thing. It's a difficult thing for a natural man to hear. None of us enjoys the idea of potential persecution in Christ. We don't want it. We don't look for it. But the Lord says it's, it, hap- it will happen okay. in, to different degrees for different people, but it will happen. And so then 
we need to accept that and understand that and know that if the Lord is saying this is what's going to come, then, then we prepare ourselves for it. And he's, that's why he's telling them ahead of time, this is, what's gonna, this is what, how it's going to go down. He says, but the flip side is that you're not going to get stuck there. See, you're going to be sorrowful, but then that sorrow is going to turn to joy. That word turn means for something to be changed completely. Okay? And you're going to have this joy. The word is kara in, in the Greek. The sorrow is not going to last. You know? You're going to have joy because I will have risen. Because I'll be alive. And then you'll know that there's victory over death. And you know, we see this sorrow turn to joy in a couple different spots here, very vividly at his resurrection. If you remember in John chapter 20, verses 14 to 16, when Mary and the women get to the tomb and they see that they're, they're sad and then they realize he's alive. They, it, uh, flip, the flip is switched and, and there, there it is. We see the same thing with the apostles in Luke 24, 41, when Jesus is there and he shows them his wounds. And then it says they, they, they looked and they marveled and they were turned to joy. And they're like, I don't, what, what's going on? It, was, it went beyond their concept of what was possible, of what should happen. Hmm. It's a while that he continued to astound them time and time again. The man healed the sick and raised the dead and did all these things, was transfigured on mountains, and he rises from the dead, and, and they flip out still. You know, but our Lord continues to do those kinds of things in our life. And, and really, this is the hope of the believer, guys, that when we are in difficulty, that the Lord will turn it into joy, that the Lord will change the circumstances in our lives so that we focus on him more. And because we hope, we hope in a resurrection, yeah? We hope in the resurrection it's going to come ultimately at the end and that we're going to partake in that. It's the same attitude that Paul had in Philippians chapter 3 when he's stuck inside a jail and he's writing an epistle of joy to them. And he tells them in Philippians 3, 7, he says, But what things were gained to me, these things I've counted lost for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence and the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. He was looking longer range than what was happening immediately in his life. And it's such a testament uh, to all of us of the attitude that we need to have to live for God, that we're looking beyond all of the circumstances. You see, does the resurrection of Christ bring you to joy on account of what it means for you, that you've been saved, that God loves you, that God has this plan for you, and God wants to be with you for absolutely forever because we serve a God that, that has victory over death for us who promises that we can partake of it, just like he talks about at the end of 1 Corinthians 15. And he invites us to reign with him for all eternity. And the best thing of all is that we know him personally. You know, and we're going to see him face to face. And like Paul says, we're going to know him as we are known, like it says. And so he tells him, this is what's going to happen. You're going to get stuck in this place. Then he uses an analogy to illustrate how the turn happens here. And he uses the analogy of a woman in labor. Okay. That a woman in labor, he says, is in anguish. And they are absolutely in pain. He says, and then it changes. Once that child is born and they realize that there's life brought into the world, there's joy that fills that woman's heart so that the pain which was there is then gone. See, there, there are 
times in life where sorrow and pain are there, it is a natural consequence of a fallen world. And we're all living in a fallen world. But just like that woman's anguish is transformed, so our sorrow doesn't abide. It is transformed. So that the joy that we then enter into in Christ is far greater, is overwhelming than whatever there was before that. You know, the the joy that we have in Christ is huge. It is greater than anything the world can throw at us. And it happens as we trust in him, as we just lay our cares down at his feet, as we spend time in, in the word and in prayer and in fellowship, and as we, you know, get up and we go serve and we're active in pleasing him. You know, Jesus said that they're going to have sorrow then. He says, therefore, you now have sorrow. So see, this same thing follows with you guys, you know. See, God doesn't seek to shield us from the pain in this world. He tells us that it exists. He tells us that it's there. And then he says, and this is what's going to happen with it, you know. Just like with our kids, we'd love to be able to shield them from so many things, right? But the reality is that we have to teach them about the things that will be coming their way because if we do not, we are derelict in our duties as parents, as adults for that matter, and whatever young people that you're around in your life. And the Lord is doing that here with the disciples where he's showing them the things that will take place very shortly in their life. Hmm. Then he says, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and joy, your joy, no one will be able to take from you. So you'll see me again. And the emphasis really is on his desire to see them is what the Greek is really emphasizing there that he says, I will see you again, you know, and we will be with each other. See, my departures in the end is what he's telling them and that he wanted to be with them. And he's going to be with them, just like he wants to be with us. So that when we are having these difficulties in life, we likewise can take heart in these words, that we'll see the Lord, that that's our goal. You see, are we in love with the person of Christ is what we're asking tonight. Is it Christ or is it something else that we're following? You know, so, so much of what people look for in churches is not the person of Christ. They're looking for community. They're looking for belonging. You know, they're looking for you know, financial help. Whatever it is, people come for all kinds of different reasons. But if we're not here for the person of Christ, then we're here for the wrong reasons. And yet the Lord will meet us where we're at despite that fact. You know, as we sit and we listen to the word. So then we take heart. In so much as, as Peter was talking to persecuted Christians in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, he tells him, So then in this you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials, that the genuine, genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Though you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. You know, it must have been, it must have been such a joy for someone like Peter who walked and talked with Jesus to be able to preach the gospel and people come in faith and says, and you believe anyway. It must have just reminded him when Jesus was saying, says, blessed are those who do not see and yet believe, you know, when he was talking to Thomas. He's really talking about that focus. That even though this happens, you're looking to him. Just like it tells us in Hebrews that he is the author and finisher of our faith. 
So Jesus says the end result of this will be that your heart's going to rejoice, that you would be glad to be see him again, understanding that his life and his victory is a source of the joy. And that's what it's founded on. Okay. See, we're not just happy-go-lucky people just because it is what we are all of a sudden as Christians. But it's because of what he's done. It's because of the work of the cross. It's because of the resurrection on that third day. You see, is Christ the source of our joy today? Is that joy something that encourages us and strengthens us in our daily walk in the same way that it was in Nehemiah chapter 8 when they're facing adversaries and, and battles and he tells them, hey, the joy of the Lord is our strength. You know, We're going to keep on going and we're going to sit here and we're going to do the work of God irrespective of all the other things that are going on because we want to please him. Because it is a joyful thing to live in obedience to God. See, Jesus said then, because of this, your joy is going to be a joy that is lasting and no one will take it away from you in verse 22. It's an abiding joy. It's not an emotion. No person, no outsider can take that away from you. It's not temporal. You know? And our joy is lasting, really, because Jesus' res- resurrection from the dead is lasting. It's not an over and over kind of a thing. He did it once and it's done. He's alive forever. It's not like Lazarus who rose from the dead and then died again. That didn't happen with Jesus. He's alive now. He's alive now. Hmm. Consider how, how often the church in Acts, despite all logic, was filled with joy, even though they had difficulty in, in life. You know, in, in Acts chapter 13, they're facing opposition And in 1352, it says, and so the disciples then were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. I mean, these are the kinds of people that would be thrown into prison and then they'd be singing songs and psalms. People would get saved because they were just filled with that joy of the Lord. They're like, yeah, you know, we we got to suffer for Christ. (laughs) Like, okay, whoa. (laughs) I don't know if I'd have that kind of an attitude there. Um. It's just like in Lamentations. It, it, this was a song we sing years ago, at least a line of a song. In Lamentations chapter 3, verse 21. If you know anything about Lamentations, suffice it to say, it's a sad book. <laughs> you know, the guy's just bummed. And in Lamentations three twenty-one, he says, This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed. Because his compassions fail not. He says, they are new every morning. As great is your faithfulness. And that's the truth. That when there's difficulty, despite no matter how bad it looks, that the Lord is still there with you, that his mercy is there, that his grace is active in your life, that is a source of encouragement. And you can hang your hat on that. You see, does the world see that in our lives? Do they take note of that joy in us? Can they observe it? Is it tangible? Because as we're living a joyful life in him, it's a testament of this dying world. And they want to know more. And it draws them in. Not that it's something that's artificial, but that it's a natural outgrowth of our life in Christ. But secondly, he talks about the access they have in Jesus in verses 23 through 27. He tells them so that in that day then, they're not going to ask Jesus for anything, to make any requests of him. In that day of their joy, you know, they won't feel the need to. Be like, we, we, got, we got you. you know, there won't be those questions like there was, was before. What does he mean by this and that? No, just accept them. They understand him. And I think we see that confirmed as we look at their reaction to him post-resurrection. And Jesus said then, 
that whatever they'd ask in his name from the Father, they'd have. So that they'd ask the Father themselves now through Jesus. There would no longer be this, hey, Jesus, I need this, or Jesus, I need that. He says, you know, you're going to have access directly to the Father, and he's going to give you whatever you ask in my name. You ask it. He's saying, you don't have to worry about it. You don't have to fear that he's there. Then, all right, ask, pray. And you see that that's a comfort because it's something we can be confident in, that we can ask the Lord to fill our needs and he's going to do what is best for us. And he's going to fulfill those things. And it's such a basic principle you know, of our faith, but it's something that we need to hear all the time because we've got to pray all the time because there's new things that come up all the time, at least new things to us anyhow. So Jesus tells them, so you're going to ask in my name and you will receive that your joy says might be full. And even before that, he talks about how they really hadn't asked anything yet in his name. You know, He's really talking about their method of praying before, that they had never asked in Jesus' name, never acknowledged him directly as the source, but he says, now from here on afterwards, this is how you will pray. So that in the same way that we ask for things in his name, understanding that he's the reason we have access to the Father, that he is there. And it's because of his righteousness that we are then acceptable to the Lord and we can come before him, you know. Just like it says in Hebrews, you come boldly before the throne of grace. Whoa. Crazy stuff. You don't just walk into the Oval Office and ask the president stuff. You know, good luck getting in the gate. And uh, it's, it's access to the Lord. Way better than any president or king or politician or mayor or councilman. But we have access to him ourselves. And he invites us then. Jesus tells them, ask. And in fact, that's a command there in the Greek. He says, ask and you'll receive. Do it. Take me up on it. No lie. You know, the Lord wants to hear it. He says, and you will receive your request. You know, not everything. Just like when he talks later on about asking a miss in, in, in First Peter. He says that that can happen as believers. But we go to him knowing that he's going to do what is best for us. He says, and you're going to have your joy made full that word full is to make something complete or perfect that's complete in every particular it's the exact same word we see in first john chapter one verse four when john writes and these things you write to you so that your joy may, might be full so that you will be able to partake completely so that you won't have anything lacking in him you see jesus's purpose in giving uh, their request to them is that they might have fullness of joy in their lives in christ now Notice he doesn't say riches, he doesn't say honor, he doesn't say notoriety or any of those things. He says, but you have joy in me. Joy in the Lord. So then, what kind of Christian life are we looking to live? Are, are we looking to live a full Christian life? Are we looking to get everything that the Lord wants us to have? That the Lord wants us to have, not that we want to have. Is that our aim? Because our joy is found in him, our joy is found in his word. It's just like Jesus says in John fifteen eleven. these things I've spoken to you that... My joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. Joy is founded in him. The joy is founded in his word and in going back to that. And he tells them, not only are you going to have access, but then he tells them, but you're going to have knowledge too as you have this access. He explains to them how he's spoken to them in the past. He says, these things I've spoken to you in figurative language, but the time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. 
When he talks about uh, figurative language in the Greek, he's really talking about um, something that is kind of a, a, what they would call a dark saying, something that's said in shadows that teaches or illustrates a truth and something that is symbolic. And so Jesus is saying, hey, I've spoken to you guys using figures and metaphors and all these things to illustrate truth, you know, because really that, that's where they've been at. Because the unfiltered truth they weren't quite wet, ready for. Because when Jesus says stuff like he said, they, they flip out. They're like, well, what do you mean? <laughs> You're going to go and, that, and that's it? You know, I, I think this is how the world hears the gospel. And when they hear it, it, it just, it's, like, it's like the parents in Peanuts. The wah, wah, wah. They, they hear like the shape of something. They're like, what is that? Like that. And that's why when like, you say something to a non-believer and you're sharing with them, they seize on the wrong thing, don't they? Because they don't have ears to hear like Jesus says. Just like when Jesus is sharing in the parables and he tells the disciples, hey, you know, we talk to them in parables, you know, just like it says, lest hearing they hear with their, uh, with their ears and they understand with their hearts. He says, they're dead. They don't get it. They're not sensitive to the things of the spirit. He says, I speak plainly to you guys. And this is, he says, where they're going to be at. They're going to be at a place where they will understand and he will speak freely is what it means there. He will speak plainly, clearly. And this will happen after the resurrection. No doubt clearly connected to what he just talked about earlier in John 16, 13. He was talking about the Holy Spirit. He says that, the, that when he, the Spirit, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you the things to come. He says, And then you'll know. And you'll be able to understand. Because these things are spiritually discerned in the same way that he told Nicodemus the same things. He says, you don't get it because these are spiritually discerned, you know. So I speak to you in, in things that you can understand of the natural world. And then you want me to speak other things. You're not going to get it. But Jesus says, this, this is time is coming. This is where we're at as believers, guys. This is where we're at. Because we have the Holy Spirit living in us, speaking to us. We can understand the things of God in a way that even the disciples couldn't when they were with the person of Christ, right there in the flesh. You know, we get the Holy Spirit and we have access to knowing the mind of God. That is such a cool thing. It's always amazing to me how when I sit and read or I sit and study, that it starts to make sense. I think part of me still thinks like, I don't know what this means or that or the other thing. And then the Lord just like, boom, there it is. You're like, whoa, how'd that happen? <laughs> I, I don't understand that. The Lord is faithful. The Lord honors just the tiniest bit, tiniest bit of obedience on our part. This is where you guys are going to be at. Could you imagine the things that Jesus taught them that are not recorded in Scripture after the resurrection? I mean, he was around for 40 days. It's a long time. It's well over a month. It wasn't continuous, but he was around quite a bit. They got used to it for sure. I mean, he must have taught them all the things that they were going to need to be able to serve and do the things that happened in the book of Acts. You know, and then prep them for that day of Pentecost. He says, so then in that day, they're going to ask in his name. He says, and you're going to ask, and I'm not going to have to go and pray the Father for you anymore. So I'm not going to have to ask for you. You're going to be able to ask directly. It's this distinct shift of the order of things after the resurrection because he's gone in there. It reminds me of what it says in Matthew when Jesus um, dies there. It says how the veil was torn in two in the temple. And it, I got to think this is, 
related to that. He says, and I'm not going to do this not because I don't want to. He says, I'm not going to do this because, he says, the Father loves you. He says, for the Father himself loves you because you've loved me and you believe that I came forth from God. That word love there is the word phileo. And it means this, this affection, this friendly love towards a singular person. See, so Jesus won't have to entreat the Father because the Father's love is going to drive him to meet their needs, to listen to them. And that he loves them. He loves us because of their belief in, in Christ as a Savior. That they believe, like he says, that he came from the Father because that was the truth. And they said, all right, we, we, we got this. We, we believe in that. We're hanging our hats on that. They believe that he's divine and they're devoted to him. And it's a privilege of being his kids. So that your faith in Christ, my faith in Jesus Christ, you know, for, who's come from God, who's come to take away our sins, who's come to give us access to him, allows us to be in this kind of a relationship with God. That God then meets us. That God says, all right, you talk to me. And I'm going to sit and I'm going to listen. Hmm. You know, this faith that we have isn't just all about what we get from God. It's also about what it moves us to do on a daily basis for him, how it moves us towards obedience. In fact, in John chapter 14, they're in the same discourse, John 14, verse 19, Jesus is talking about this very issue. And he says, so a little while longer and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you will live also. See, at that day, you will know that I'm in my father and you and me and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them. It is he who loves me and he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Then he jumps. If you jump down to verse 23, he continues. So if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and he will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words and the word which you hear is not mine but the fathers who sent me. Jesus circles back around to it here near the end that they're going to love God and they believe in God, but it's followed by something that's active because we don't love without action. We don't love in word only, but like it says, we love indeed and in truth. See, God's design is for us to be one in him, for us to be united with him and with the son. Jesus is going to tell them this in the very next chapter as he's praying in John 17, verse 20. And as he's praying for all believers, he says this. He says, I do not pray for these alone, but for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. You know, it not just changes, doesn't just change our lives as individuals, it changes the lives of everyone around us, doesn't it? As we become one in him. And it's just magnified exponentially after that. And that's the Lord's design for us. That's the Lord's design. And that's a cool thing course we know that 
We can't take credit for any of that stuff. <laughs> it's all the Lord. Even our love for him, even our belief and our faith in him only occurs because he loved us first, like it tells us in 1 John four nineteen, right? That we loved him because he first loved us. So we can't even say, yeah, well, I did this and I did that. See, Jesus wants them to see what kind of privilege they have. It reminds me of Paul when he's writing to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 1, and he wants them to understand all the things that they have available to them as Christians. And Ephesians 1, if you'd bear with me for a second, he tells them this in 1 verse 15. He says, Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. See, the eyes of your understanding, this is the important part, that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. He says that God raised his son from the dead. And that all of that amazing ability and power is there for you. It's at your disposal. So what are we doing with it? What are we doing with it? It's like winning the lottery and then we just like, ah, you know, I'm going to stuff it in my mattress. (laughs) Okay. That's nice, I guess. You know, we are the spiritual fat cats, guys. Now, the Lord asks us to use the things that he's given to us. We've all been gifted. Are we active about our Father's business? Are we occupying the time like we're encouraged to do in the New Testament? Because a lot of times we, we are content to live as these spiritual midgets when we can ask the Lord and he'll give us anything that we need to live for him, that we need to know him more intimately, that we need to be more effective for him, and, and we, we hold back. Because, you know, we want to be Christians, but we don't want to be like the super Christian, you know. I, I'm cool going to church, but I don't know if I want to, like, you know, be like these pastors, you know. That's kind of crazy, you know. I don't need to be saying praise the Lord all the time or howdy brother or whatever. We get these weird ideas. Thirdly here, he shows them that they have peace with the victory that's available in Jesus in verses 28 through 33. He tells them, so then I come forth, from the Father, and I've come into the world. Again, I leave the world and go to the Father. So Jesus is saying, hey, this is the order of things. I, I, I came from heaven to the world. Uh, he's talking about his incarnation here. And it's, this is a term that's kind of specific, actually, to the Gospel of John here. That Christ, as, in, in, as he was an incarnate Christ, left the Father in heaven. And he did this in a willing manner. He didn't say, I wasn't coerced. I wasn't forced. I willingly entered into this world. For the sake of man, for the sake of you, is what he's saying. He did it because of love. He says, and I'm leaving to go back to the Father. Also because of love. One, because he, he belongs by the right side of the Father. Two, because like he had said earlier, without him leaving, we couldn't have the Holy Spirit. Because it wasn't God's design that people get saved and they're taken out of this world. But it's his design that people are saved and we live in this world. And that by our testimony we are able to draw others in and bring them along with us. You know? So he leaves them because of love. 
You see, we needed Jesus to die. Just like we needed him to rise again. And he's showing them that this is absolutely necessary that this happens, guys. And of course, just like we need him to return, come back now. <laughs> you know, please, that would be awesome. And this is the comfort that, that he goes before us, right? Just like he said in, in John 14, 2 and 3, you know, that he goes before us to prepare a place for us, doesn't he? And that we know that that's going to happen. What's it going to look like? I don't know. He says there's mansions and stuff, you know. I'll take... I'll take the worst house in the best neighborhood. It's all about location. I, huh? and, and Jesus is saying, I'm going before you. And you're going to have whatever you need. You have whatever you need here. You're going to have way more than what you need in heaven. And see, the disciples, they react to this and they hear this. And they think that they got things wired. I think they understand. They tell them, oh, you know, we understand now. You know, you're speaking plainly. You're not using any figures of speech. We, we, we got this, you know. We, it's easy to understand. They felt kind of self-assured there. They even said they were so sure that there was no need for anyone to question him anymore. No need to ask any more questions. No need to wonder. We, 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 got, we totally, we, we got you, Jesus. You know? No doubt, no doubt. We, we get this. They didn't get it. They didn't get it. I mean, they declared they, their belief in him, right? He said, oh, we, we believe in you. We believe that you came forth from God. They kind of parroted it back. And we're like, yeah, we, we, we got this. You did come from, from the Father. Now we know for sure. Now, now we, we really believe. All because you knew. You knew that we had these questions. And then you told them all to us. And you explained it. So now we really know. You know, it reminds me of Nathaniel. You remember when Philip brings Jesus to Nathaniel in John chapter 1. And Nathaniel sitting there and they talk about Nazareth. like, yeah, whatever, Galilee and yada, yada. And Jesus says, oh, you know. And when you were sitting under that fig tree and he wigs out, he's like, what? You saw me? Oh, Lord, you know. And he falls on his knees and all this. He says, man, he says, if you flip out because of that, you're going to see greater things than that. See, we sometimes we focus on, on the wrong things. God does something and we're like, oh, this was awesome. And God's like, no, that's not the cool part. That was all right. But this, this is the cool part. Like, oh, okay. See, this is where they were at. Scary place to be, though. I mean, look, Jesus asked them another question. Do you now believe? <laughs> oh, that's not so good. You see, Jesus is pointing out one of two things. Either, oh, now you believe. Or really, you believe, yeah. But he's going to tell them why their belief isn't founded on much at this point. It's going to be tough, you know. Now they believe. Three and a half years with Jesus and now they believe, you know. Of course, Jesus knows what's going to happen. Jesus knows the emotional state that they're in. You know, we should be fearful of, of that pride that comes before the fall, yeah. We think, when we think we got things wired in Christ, oof, that, that's, that's a scary place to be, you know. It's like I've seen uh, young people, they go off to college like, yeah, you know, I'm like, going to be a Christian. I'm going to college and get all this. And, and then two years later, you can't find them in a church. They haven't cracked open a Bible in a while. And let me tell you, it has nothing to do with the college. It has everything to do with the person. Okay? It has everything to do with the person. It has to do with where they're at because those are the same people that will very likely go off and, 
do their own thing, whether they're at APU or whether they're at UCLA or whether they're at your local JC. It doesn't matter, okay? Because the foundation was not right. Jesus tells them that the hour is coming when they're going to be scattered and they're going to leave Jesus by himself, he says. That word scattered there, it's used of some things that are driven away because of fear. Their impulse to, to leave quickly. It's the same word that Jesus uses in John 10. He talks about the sheep that are scattered, you know, when the shepherd is struck. The exact same idea. So that despite their declarations of belief, they're going to be driven away by fear. They're going to say, you're on your own, Jesus. Even Peter followed his declaration like he had said earlier. Jesus said, oh, you're going to, you're going to deny me three times, you know. And he tried to be faithful in his way, like saying afar off, not saying to you, no, I'm not a Galilean. I don't know this guy. And three different times. And then the Lord nailed him. Hmm. This really fulfills what it says in Zechariah 13, 7 about him being forsaken by those that he loves. See, they're not as devoted as they claim. I wonder this kind of thing about myself and my own life, about all of us. We, we think we're in a certain spot spiritually. And sometimes, we, you know, we, we just aren't being truthful to ourselves. And the reality is that our faith is truly tested when there is difficulty. And that really reveals where we're at. It's that stress test. Yeah. And then we see, am I where I should be? And the Lord lets things happen sometimes so that we can see. And then we can make adjustments. Or so that we can succeed and then be even more devoted after that. Thank the Lord, he's so gracious. He says, you guys are going to leave me. But then Jesus tells him, he says, don't worry though, I'm not alone. He says, because the Father is with me. You see, Jesus loved them. Jesus wanted to be with them. But Jesus is saying, my reliance, as much as I love you guys, my reliance isn't on you guys. He says, but it's on the Father. And he's going to be with me. And, And you see, I think this is a model for the disciples in the way that they should handle things. You see, Jesus is confident the Father will see him through this, through to the other side. Although he also knew that the Father would forsake him for that time when he bore all of our sins on the cross. And he knew that was coming, but he knew there'd be another side to it. So that he knows what it's like to be in that spot. So that if he relied on the Father, we follow his example. We do the exact same thing. We keep our eyes focused because guaranteed what he experienced on that cross, not the physical pain, but that spiritual separation was far worse than anything we can imagine. You know, in, in Luke, in, excuse me, in, in Isaiah 50, verse 6, it's talking about uh, the Messiah. And he says, I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. For the Lord God will help me. Therefore, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. He is near who justifies me. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near me. Surely the Lord God will help me. Who is he who will condemn me? Indeed, they, all will, they will all grow old like a garment. The moth will eat them up. And you know, this is the... Uh, a messianic in terms of, you know, I am going to be forsaken. This is what's going to happen. But his faith was in the Father. 
despite that, make his face like flint, you know, and he would bear, then he would stand up against his enemies. And what an example for us as believers, knowing the difficulty, to go ahead and step forward. And we see his travail as he's there and, and praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he, he wanted to avoid it if at all possible. But it, we couldn't be saved otherwise. It, it had to happen. And Jesus tells them so that it, they should then have peace in him. He says, indeed, the hour is coming when... Uh, and has not come that you will be scattered each to his own and will leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. He says, so then these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. You know, peace is what Christians have when they know they have nothing to fear because God is with them. When we're content in him, satisfied, Jesus is telling them, I want you guys to keep on having peace. You have peace now. I want that to persist in your life. Because it's, this difficulty is right here. It's tonight, he's telling them. It's a promise. And yet at the same time, that peace is there for you. Okay? And you can have that peace by relying on my words. That you can go, go back and remind yourself, this is what I said. Say, all right. Uh, I, I can weather this storm because the reality is that peace is only found in the person of Christ. That's the only place it's found. It's in no other system. It's in no other person. It's in no other set of actions. It's in him. Everything that we do. If it's not him, it doesn't matter. You know, if it's not him, it doesn't matter. We get distracted by way too many things as Christians. Way too many things, you know. We get wild presidents and politicians, people doing crazy things in marches and parades, and we start wigging out. Why? Why? It doesn't matter ultimately. These people need Jesus really bad, you know. And if we're not taking that out to them, is that not the thing that we're standing up on a soapbox and, and yelling in the street corners about? Then you know we're we're worse off than they are if that's not what it's all about for us. And so God prepares these people and he doesn't just drop them into a difficulty without preparing them in the same way that he does the same thing with us. So then as believers, are we relying on what he's provided for us? So do we rely on him in a real way each and every day? Because it really does begin with him. It begins with understanding that's different from the world's understanding. Like he tells them in Fort, uh, John fourteen twenty seven, that peace I leave with you it says, my peace I give you, not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. He says, it's not like the world gives peace. It's different because it's spiritual, because it's founded on me. And it's going to move you to do something different. He says, and you have that peace. But know this, that in the world you will have tribulation, he tells him in verse 33. You will be oppressed. You will be distressed. You will be afflicted. That word tribulation really means, uh, in the Greek, oppressing together. Of two things. And when things are pressed together, tremendous pressure, they generally break at some point. And that's the illustration. Is you, this is where you guys are going to be. You're going to be in a really, really difficult situation. He says, so long as you're in this world, in the world you will have tribulation. There's no time frame for that. Just in the world. Same thing is true for us in our lives. And this is going to happen because we're connected to Christ. 
The world is our enemy on account of him. So then, have we as individuals made peace with the world being our enemy? Or are we still trying to cozy up to the world? Are we still trying to bridge the two? Because sometimes we want to do that. We're like, I want to have that too because it'll just make it a little bit easier, a little more palatable. And that's a danger for us because we do not belong to this world. We have to remind ourselves that we're heavenly citizens, that we're pilgrims. We don't belong here. This is not, this is not where we live. It's just we're passing through. You know, we're living in tents, right? We're not laying foundations and building things here. And Jesus says, you will have these tribulations. He says, but remember, be of good cheer because I have overcome the world. Be of good cheer. Take courage is what he says. And it's a command, by the way. Take courage because I've won. That when he's talking about that, he's saying victory, complete victory over all of his foes. So much so that it takes away their ability to harm or to influence. That's the kind of victory that Christ had. You know, it's interesting in the Greek, the way it's stated here, that he's saying, for I have overcome the world. He's saying it as something that's happened in the past, that happened once, and is done forever. He says, the victory is done already. It's happened. He's not talking about some weird space-time continuing thing. It's not some sci-fi stuff. That he has come, and that human history was interrupted by God himself, taking on flesh. That's it. He was was done. He just needed to make it through to the end there. And that's it. He says, that victory is there for you. Hmm. See, the believer then shares that victory in Christ. We get to win. It's like what Paul says in Romans 8, 37, yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You know, knowing the end from the beginning is so important. Having that trust. It's something we should take heart in that we should take encouragement in, something that should move us to be heavenly-minded, you know, that we know the end from the beginning. It's like having a lockdown closer, you know. You're not afraid of that last little bit. And, and the Lord, see, he's taking care of it, man. He, he, he's got it wired for us. Like, all right, I'm just going to hold on. I, I can do this, you know. Not because I can do it, but because I can trust, you know. I could submit. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your love and goodness. Our prayer, Lord, is that you would move us to, to greater trust in you, Lord. That we'd submit ourselves to you so that you might be able to use us for your glory. That other people, Lord, would be able to enjoy the fellowship that we have in you. We thank you for your love and your grace, and we're so reliant on it, Lord. We ask that you continue to have your hand on us. Bless us as we go forth from here, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.